This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Other than skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common cancer in men in the United States. It will affect one in every six men 65 years and older. Fortunately, when detected and treated early, it's very treatable, and the vast majority of men will not die from it. Currently, the five-year survival for localized prostate cancer or cancer with regional spread is nearly 100%. Although prostate cancer is generally treated by urologists, eventually most of these men who've had a diagnosis of prostate cancer will return to their primary care providers for long-term follow-up. With us today to discuss the primary care management of the post-prostate cancer patient is Dr. Matthew Tollefson, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic. Matt, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, let's talk first about what's new in the field of prostate cancer treatment. Yeah, I think this has been a really dynamic area in the last five years. So there have been innovations that have happened at the early stages of disease. So new surgical robots have emerged over the last couple of years that can reduce the morbidity of the surgeries that we're doing. Frequently, for example, these surgeries to remove the whole prostate involve just one night in the hospital or sometimes are even done as an outpatient. So that's been a big change and something that that we've worked on to really improve the patient experience. Radiation techniques similarly have gotten more precise. And as newer technologies are emerging, we're able to push the envelope in terms of what we can do to administer radiation treatments to these patients with minimal effect on the surrounding tissues. So it's been really fascinating. I'm also looking forward to further work looking at focal therapy. So instead of treating the whole prostate, really zeroing our treatment efforts in on the area of the prostate that we're the most concerned with. Well, it seems like when I would find patients with prostate cancer, the decision that they had to make was, do they have treatment with surgery, prostatectomy, or radiation therapy? How does the survival compare to those two different treatments? Yeah, and I I think this is exactly the, the most common situation that I find ourselves in too. I would actually add to that, that In addition to surgery and radiation, active surveillance has become an increasing tool that we use for prostate cancer. So there are some of these prostate tumors that don't require any treatment at all. When they do require treatment, radiation and surgery tend to be the most common treatments that are done. And I think it's important to note, as you mentioned in the introduction, that the survival rates are very high for both options. And when we look at, say, five or 10 year survival rates, they're really effectively the same. And so this, when men are choosing between surgery and radiation, frequently that discussion centers around some of the side effects and the side effect profile can differ from one treatment to the next. But the good news is really success rates and cancer treatment is effectively the same with both and both offer really high rates of disease cure. They do seem to have different potential side effects Why don't you talk a little bit about that, you know, the prostatectomy adverse effects versus the radiation therapy? I think that's important because this is how many patients are making their decision on that initial treatment. 
I would say to that that it's more common after surgery to experience some urinary incontinence. So a little bit of leaking of urine. Usually it's not a lot, but, but certainly having some urine leak out as, as men are being physically active, as they're picking up heavy things and have that stress incontinence is, is much more common after surgery. With radiation, the bladder can lose some of the elasticity. So maybe a smaller capacity bladder needing to urinate more often. Sometimes needing to urinate with some urgency is more common after radiation. And occasionally some bowel effects, especially early on after radiation are more common with that approach. Erectile dysfunction is also common with both of these treatments given the proximity of the prostate to the nerves and blood vessels that are important for that process. Okay. So we have a patient who has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. They have had one type of treatment, whichever they have chosen. When should they be seen for their first follow-up visit? That's a great question. So PSA is, is, as we all know, rather controversial and when used in the detection of prostate cancer. But the real purpose that PSA was originally developed and the use case for which it's found the most success has been in monitoring outcomes after an initial therapy. And so that tends to be the way that we follow most men after treatment. Usually the rule of thumb that that I give to patients is to plan to check a PSA every three to four months, the first year after surgery or radiation, and then to gradually increase that interval after that in large part, depending on the aggressiveness of the tumor that we're treating initially. At least based on my experience, it seems the early follow-up is handled by urology. When does the transition take place from the urology to the primary care provider? You're exactly right in seeing that. I think a lot of times in urology, we tend to see people back for that initial follow-up in large part because we're also managing some of the side effects of treatment, maybe some of the urinary incontinence, maybe managing some erectile dysfunction with some of them, some of those men. So we do tend to see them most often in that first year or two after initial treatment. I would say after two years is really kind of the time frame at which much of that follow-up care tends to be transitioned to general practice providers. As long as there aren't any new urinary or sexual function concerns, that that, that tends to be kind of the more routine part of ongoing follow-up, that that's when we really engage uh, primary care physicians with. What should we be doing when we see these patients? What kind of evaluation should we perform? So again, I think this is an area where this is really PSA-based. So particularly after surgery, we'd expect that PSA to be zero or, or, or at least very close to zero. If you don't have a prostate, you shouldn't make much PSA. If we see that consistently increasing, if it's above a level of around 0.2 or higher after surgery, on two consecutive evaluations, that's considered a biochemical recurrence of prostate cancer, and that's when we'd like to see those patients back. After someone said radiation therapy, they still have a prostate, so the specific criteria change a little bit, and in that setting, we would generally say the nadir plus two. So if the PSA decreases to, you know, let's say one, then we would look at any increase up to a level of around three, potentially representing a recurrence, at least for which we'd want those patients to be evaluated again. Yeah, it seems like, at least in my experience, and I have not had that many patients who've undergone radiation therapy, 
the PSA doesn't seem to drop down to zero or undetected as it does in the prostatectomy patients. Is, is that typical? That's really common. Again, when you have a prostate that's there, um, that prostate still makes a little bit of PSA. So it's really common to have a low level of PSA after someone said radiation to the prostate. It's usually not high and it's not as high as perhaps it was before treatment, but it's really common to have a you know, a PSA of around one or so after radiation therapy, and that's considered perfectly normal. Okay. So PSA is one thing. Do these patients need a digital rectal exam? You know, again, another area that that's gone under some repeat evaluation. And honestly, I think that we've found that the accuracy and need for digital rectal exam is not really a necessary investigation after someone's had successful treatment that's reflected with their PSA. So in very rare situations, is it really helpful from a prostate cancer standpoint to repeat that digital rectal exam? Well, that will make many patients very happy to hear that. <laughs> I always performed one on my post-prostate cancer patients, and they were disappointed because they said that was maybe the only good thing I thought I was going to get out of having prostate cancer surgery. <laughs> We've got the patient, and uh, can we see them annually? Is that adequate? Yeah, I think after that two-year time frame, unless they have particularly high-risk cancer, that's generally what we would look at as an annual checkup with the PSA at that point, and then use that PSA to kind of guide whether or not somebody needs to be seen more frequently. But if their PSAs are doing well, then annual evaluations after that two-year time frame is perfectly reasonable. Okay. Now, I've had a few patients who have gone five, even 10 years following their prostate cancer surgery. Presumably, they've had a cure. It was localized disease, uh, no lymph node involvement, and the PSA has been undetectable. But say, you know, 10 years later, there's a trace of PSA. Where is that coming from? So this, I think, speaks in some ways to the relative indolence of prostate cancer. So that's always the concern that there's just been prostate cancer that maybe takes five years or more to present itself. I think the other thing that we commonly see is perhaps a little bit of benign prostate tissue that as time goes on, that tissue can grow and, be, and, and create a detectable PSA. Sometimes maybe as surgeons, we may leave a little bit of tissue near the urethral sphincter in an attempt to try to preserve urinary continence. So, you know, if that were to grow a little higher, then that could in theory produce some PSA. Okay. But it's that level of 0.2. Again, if it's above 0.2, especially if it's rising above 0.2, that's the level at which we would look to obtain additional imaging and or studies and, and really consider that a biochemical recurrence. Okay. Well, you mentioned imaging. What imaging studies are indicated and when are they indicated? So in the context of someone that's already had treatment for prostate cancer, we would usually like to get imaging before their PSA reaches one, for example, in the post-prostatectomy context. And at that point, we use MRI. So MRIs, you know, I think been something that's really revolutionized the field of prostate cancer in the last five to 10 years. But we use that to try to detect any residual prostate tissue near where the prostate was removed, perhaps to look for lymph nodes in the area and to assess for anything that could be left in that local area. And then we also look at additional imaging, and, and this is where it's been a truly exciting field over the last few years. C11 choline PET scanning is a useful tool to try to identify sites of metastatic disease. 
And investigationally, we're also rolling out a study called PSMA PET scanning. So that stands for prostate-specific membrane antigen. It's an antigen that sits on the surface of prostate cells. And we can use a marker to identify those areas and, and potentially further identify recurrences at an even earlier stage. Are bone scans used anymore for evaluating post-prostate cancer patients? They are. And so bone scans would be considered part of that conventional imaging that are commonly obtained um, as well. You're probably right that I should have included that as MRI, potentially one of these newer generation PET scanning and, and bone scanning as kind of a thorough evaluation of somebody in whom you're concerned for recurrent prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned MRI for following these patients. It seems like that's also been used more and maybe has replaced the ultrasound in looking at men who have, you know, like a modest elevation of their PSA. We're trying to determine if there's prostate cancer causing it. Uh, we used to do an ultrasound in those patients looking for nodules, but now it seems like uh, it's the MRI that's ordered. Yeah, I think MRI has really taken over that. I mean, it's really, it's truly revolutionized. And we get so much information from an MRI that we don't necessarily always see from an ultrasound. For example, we can see some staging information, whether or not a tumor is involving a neurovascular bundle, which would predict a higher risk of erectile dysfunction. We also look at lymph nodes with an MRI better than we can with with an ultrasound. So we get so much information with an MRI that it has in large part replaced ultrasound in that context. All right. Well, let's change directions just a little bit. Let's talk about the treatment options that are currently available for patients with uh, recurrent disease. These are patients that you've treated one way or another and now have a recurrence. This has been an area that's been truly exciting over the, the past few years. Clearly, it depends upon their initial treatment, but we have a lot more to offer than we did even just a few years ago. When I think of this, I, I tend to think of things as whether it's localized to the prostate or the regional area versus when somebody can become metastatic. So if it spreads beyond the regional area. For tumors that are local or contained to the prostate or maybe the region where the prostate was before surgery, things like focal therapy, proton beam radiation, and potentially salvage surgery in someone that had radiation as their initial treatment have become increasingly available and really offer kind of a second chance at cure for many patients that recur after an initial treatment. For men that, are, that develop metastatic disease, we have so many more things to offer now that we didn't even just a few years ago. So between chemotherapy for particularly young or particularly aggressive cancers to hormone deprivation therapy, to advanced levels of hormonal ma manipulation, there are many more options that are available that were not available even just a few years ago. Yeah, I remember years of, in the past where really these men had an option to get estrogen in some form, and, and that was it. That was all that was available. And we had no other treatment really until, I mean, maybe even like 10 years ago really was the first time that, that some of these drugs used to treat metastatic prostate cancer really came into acceptance. So it's been truly a dynamic field recently. I've got a question that's kind of unrelated to this, but I've often wondered it, and I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you about it. I've had an occasional patient who's been successfully treated, uh, whether it's most of them by surgery, they've gone several years without any recurrence. And now I see them back and they're on an androgen supplement. Is that wise? Is that 
of no risk to them, some risk? Where, where do you stand on that? My perspective on that would be that provided that somebody has had, for example, surgery and has an undetectable PSA, or they've had radiation and they've had no evidence of recurrence and they're off hormone therapy because commonly radiation uses some androgen suppression during that time, that I think it's perfectly reasonable for men to be treated in, into the normal range of testosterone. I think where many urologists start to feel a little uncomfortable or many oncologists treating patients with prostate cancer would be if we're pushing that testosterone level above the normal accepted range. And I generally use a level of around 300 as a pretty commonly accepted normal testosterone level. So I feel a little uncomfortable to go above that. But if we're supplementing men that for one reason or another have low T, I feel comfortable to bring them into the normal range. It's just, I feel a little uncomfortable to go above that range. Okay. All right. Well, there's been tremendous progress in treating prostate cancer just in the past five years. Where do you see the field of prostate cancer treatment going in the next five years? Again, I'm, I'm just so excited. I think this is going to be a really fun area to treat and a really exciting area to see. So I look forward to robotics continuing to revolutionize the surgeries that we're doing for prostate cancer as we're seeing more generations of surgical robots, potentially with arms coming in through a single channel and then branching out on the inside. I think the morbidity of surgery is going to continue to decline. I look at radiation therapy, proton beam radiation, things like SBRT and brachytherapy, which can really make the delivery of radiation therapy being much more precise and still being amenable to patient scheduling and trying to get these complex treatment schedules done in a, in a, in a short period of time. So I think that's going to be truly exciting. And then, you know, we, we touched upon PSMA imaging just a little bit ago. We're really excited to hope to unveil some clinical trials using tagged radioisotopes to PSMA and having a really theragnostic type of approach to metastatic prostate cancer, which I think will completely revolutionize some of the treatments that we have right now. Do you think we'll ever come to a point where the patient who lives maybe 1,500 miles away in a small rural area now diagnosed with prostate cancer could ever take advantage of somebody like with your expertise in use of robotic surgery provided from a distance? Yes, absolutely. I think that's coming in the not too distant future. I, I would say I think the technology is there right now. In fact, typically when I'm in the operating room, I may not even be in the same room as the patient. We'll be in a room right adjacent to the operating room. But I think that technology is absolutely there. Some of it will depend upon billing and, and hospital reimbursement, you know, in the U.S. model as, as we currently have it. I think that that technology is, is absolutely coming, and I'm truly excited to see how that unveils. Well, it sounds like pretty good job security for you. <laughs> well, let's summarize by asking you to give us maybe two or three key points that you think summarize our discussion regarding the post-prostate cancer patient. To summarize, I would say the level that we're looking for after surgery would be a PSA of 0.2 and rising, or after radiation therapy being a level of PSA that's rising, especially if it's above two nanograms per deciliter higher than their nadir. And then this is where I think we're looking to bring in an MRI to really look for local recurrence. 
And the advanced PET scanning imaging is, I think, just really going to revolutionize our field in the next few years. And I'm excited to see what, what that will bring. Well, we've been discussing the primary care management of the post-prostate cancer patient with Dr. Matthew Tollefson from the Department of Urology. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us. It was a great discussion. Yes, well, thanks, to, thanks for having me. And I look forward to discussing new treatments as they become available in the future. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music